Well, please, congregation, turn in your Bibles this afternoon to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings 18, we'll read the first 16 verses together as we continue on in our study through the life and ministry of the prophet Elijah. First Kings 18, beginning at verse 1. This is God's holy word. And after many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. And Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. And when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find some grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself. And Obadiah went in the other direction by himself. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? And he answered him, It is I. Go, tell your lord, behold, Elijah is here. And Obadiah said, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my Lord has not sent to seek you. And when they would say he is not here, he would take an oath of the kingdom or nation that they had not found you. And now you say, go and tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. And as soon as I have gone from you, the spirit of the Lord will carry you. I do not know where. And so when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth. Has it not been told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord? How I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now you say, go, tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here and he will kill me. And Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in our passage this evening, God is still at war with the gods of the world. Thus far in the life and ministry of the prophet Elijah, the Lord has already been, been answering the, the great questions. Who is God over Israel? And who is the, the one true God of the universe? Is it Baal, the God of the Sidonians? Or is it Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And we, of course, recognize that this war is not a new war. But it's a war that God has been waging ever since Genesis 3.15, where God promised to put enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. 
ever since that day, that great Revelation 12 dragon has been seeking to, to devour that woman, to devour the seed of the woman. But God has been keeping that Genesis 3.15 promise. But we recognize that this particular segment of the war, you'll recall, began in verse 1 of chapter 17. When Elijah the Tishbite entered onto the scene of redemptive history and he appeared before wicked king Ahab and said, As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain except by my word. With those words, the prophet was issuing a great challenge to Baal, the god of rain, the false god of the Sidonians. For this challenge would prove to all Israel that, that God was the one true God and that Baal was no God at all. For as the fields in Israel have already began, begun to crack and wither under the heat of God's wrath, so too has Baal's supposed deity begun to crack and wither as, as Israel has been suffering the consequences for her sin, as Israel has been suffering the consequences for her rebelling against the Lord and against the word of the Lord. As we've also come to see this war which God has been waging against the false god of the Sidonians has not only been waged in Israel, but it has also been waged on Baal's home turf. In the heart of heathendom, in the land of the Sidonians. For a while the Lord provided food and drink for Elijah by the brook Cherith, just east of the Jordan. But after that brook dried up because Israel had not yet confessed her sin. She had not yet returned to the Lord. What did God do? God intensified his judgment saying to Elijah, arise and go to Zarephath in the land of Sidon and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to feed you. And so the word of the Lord with all its grace and all its power went beyond the borders of Israel. And it found a new home in the household of an unsuspecting widow who had been down to her last meal. Baal, of course, had not seen her. And Baal, the god of the Sidonians, her god, Baal, had, had not been able to help her. But the god of Israel had seen her. And the god of Israel has proven himself able to help her not only by by sustaining her life with that never-ending supply of, of flour and oil, but also by raising her sick child back to life. So that she came to confess the prophet Elijah, now I know, now I know that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. God has been confirming the truth of his word. Every morning was a fresh episode of his faithfulness to that widow as there was still flour in the pot and oil in the jug. And when he raised her son from death, he proved himself to be the God who is the sustainer and, and giver of life who would keep that word to provide for her so long as there was no rain in the land. Well, now, congregation, the word of the Lord is once again on the move. The word of the Lord has once again come to the prophet Elijah, and God himself has now directed him to leave Zarephath in the land of Sidon and to return to the land of Israel. 
We've seen the power of God's word in Israel is the power of his word of judgment as not a drop of rain has fallen from the sky. And we've seen God's word at work in the heart of heathendom in Zarephath. But now we're going to see that power at work once again in the heart of God's heritage. We're going to see that power of God's word bring grace and blessing to the unfaithful and undeserving people of Israel. So here we see congregation in 1 Kings 18 that this battle against Baal is is growing fierce as the word of the Lord now returns to Israel to finish the job, to finally deal the, the final death blow to Israel's trust in the false gods of the world. With astounding grace, God is going to gain the victory over Baal. He is going to triumph over every false god like Baal. We're going to see this story unravel in two sermons. We're going to see the climax of the story next time, Lord willing. But in our passage this evening, the stage is set for that great showdown, that great battle on Mount Carmel. And here in the first six verses of our passage, we see that the writing is already on the wall. Just in the first six verses, we can surmise who's going to, to win this great battle on, on Mount Carmel. As we know, worship centers for Baal have been erected throughout the land of Israel. And we know that the walls of Jericho have been rebuilt to, to fortify that kingdom and to, to keep her safe from her enemies, at least Israel thinks. Jezebel's prophets have been preaching worldview Baalism throughout the land such that God's people have given themselves over to another. But where has all this gotten them? Yes, the worship of Baal and the rebuilding of Jericho has given Israel a new way of life, a life of, of gratifying the desires of the flesh, a life of, of relying on their own strength. But where have all these things gotten her? We find the answer at the end of verse 2, where the Spirit of Christ tells us now the famine was severe in Samaria. The famine was severe in Samaria. Israel is famished. For she has forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters, and she has dug for herself a broken cistern that can hold no water at all. The land is dry. The promised land, which at one time had flowed with milk and honey, has now become a desert wasteland. On account of her sin, it has not rained in years. God's judgment says one pastor had stamped its scorching trademark on the fields of Canaan. And God's judgment has seared the lives of his people. For Israel's unbelief and rebellion against God and against the word of God has only led to misery. A parched land and a parched life. This congregation is Israel's miserable condition. Israel's sinful unbelief has done in her life what sinful unbelief always does. It has taken away everything and has made her utterly miserable. Both the land of promise as well as the people of promise have been ravaged by this famine with seemingly no end in sight so long as they and her king refuse to return to the Lord in repentance and faith. Be sure we can about imagine how some in Israel must have begun to 
try to shrug this judgment off to the side. Perhaps this drought and this famine is just a result of natural causes, some probably thought, as they suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness. But Moses had instructed Israel long ago never to imagine that drought and famine were matters of mere chance or happenstance. In Deuteronomy 28, Moses had pressed this reality upon the people of Israel when, when he said the blessings of the Lord would overflow so long as they listened to the voice of the Lord. Moses also warned them that if they refused to listen, then the Lord would strike them with fiery heat and drought. He said the heavens over their head would become as bronze and the earth under them would become iron. And the Lord would make the rain of their land powder and dust. And so the famine was severe in Samaria for one reason, and one reason alone. And that's because the people living there had come under God's covenant judgment. We cannot separate here the, the heat of the sun's burning rays from the heat of God's wrath. For three years, the heavens have been declaring the judgment of God against Israel's sin and unbelief. Wherever you turned, you could not help but, but hear the cry of sin, creation groaning under the curse, the sighing of the land, the moans of dying cattle and sheep. The famine was severe in Samaria. But Israel and Ahab have refused to listen. They've placed their hands over their ears. They will sooner die than deny their sinful way of life. And that's what we see in verses 5 and 6 of our passages. Ahab commands Obadiah to, to scour the land with him and search for water and grass for the cattle. Go through the land to all the springs of water, to all the valleys. Perhaps we find some grass to save the horses and mules alive and not lose all of our animals. Ahab, boys and girls, is not a king after God's own heart, is he? If he was, then like David in 2 Samuel 21, he would, he would recognize that famine and drought are from the hand of the Lord. And if he was a king after God's own heart, he would, he would repent of his sins and, and humble himself before the face of the Lord. And if Ahab was a king after God's own heart, then he would look after the needs of his people. Be willing to lay down his life for his people whom God had entrusted to his care. But when the famine became severe in Samaria, rather than turning to the Lord, rather than, than tending to the needs of his people, Ahab goes looking for water and food for the animals. His people are starving. But God forbid that he should lose any more of his animals. After all, all those horses and mules were Ahab's security. Those horses and mules were Ahab's security should they, they fall under the invasion of a foreign enemy. Ahab is still relying on human strength to find lasting security. He's still refusing to bow before the Lord. As one pastor said, he'd rather subject himself to judgment and perish than live in obedience to the God of the covenant. I wonder if the prophet Jeremiah perhaps had King Ahab in his mind. I wonder if the prophet Jeremiah pictured King Ahab scouring the land of Israel, looking for water and grass when, 
when he cried out in chapter 17, Cursed is the man who trusts in man, who makes flesh his strength. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. These words are written over Ahab's life as he desperately searches for water and grass for the cows. Cursed is the man who trusts in man, who makes flesh his strength. He is like a shrub in the desert, will not see any good come. You see the foolishness in Ahab's determination not to give in to the word of the Lord? You see how foolish it is that this mentality has become commonplace in all of Israel? For years, the people of Israel have suffered under the consequences of their sin, but still they have refused to listen to the sermon that the skies and the dry lands have been declaring each and every day. And yet in the face of all this, despite this amazing hardness of heart, what is God doing? Israel has not yet repented. She has not yet returned to the Lord her God. She has not yet toppled over all the, the worship centers for Baal. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, What? Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. In the midst of Israel's despair and death, God is going to give life. In the midst of her despairing for rain, God is going to send water. And not just water from the sky, but the living water of his word, as, as the word of the Lord, the word bearer, now returns to the land of Israel. In the midst of so much misery, God is showing mercy by sending his word bearer back into their midst. No congregation, Israel does not deserve this. They deserve the heat of God's wrath forever. For they have not yet humbled themselves before the face of God in repentance and faith. They do not deserve this kindness. But isn't this often how God comes to us? Isn't this how God often comes to us in the worship service? Sometimes we, we come to church and we have hardly repented of our sins at all. We have often come to church and we have merely shoved our sins under the rug. Because we're not quite ready to relinquish them or to put them to death. And yet in His grace, how often doesn't our God yet come to us and speak to us anyways? Regardless of how undeserving we may be of that very thing. How often doesn't He come to us with yet another warm and gracious summons to to leave our sins and our sinful way of life at the foot of the cross and to find mercy in the midst of our misery. Perhaps God is doing that very thing for some of you here and now. 
Perhaps some of you are here this evening and you're living in sins which no one knows about but God himself. Perhaps you're still clinging on to those sins and you're not quite ready to give them up. But God is nevertheless coming to you. He's coming to you anyways in the preaching of the word. He's coming with the word of promise, the word of life. The word of grace and forgiveness provided that you will indeed give ear to his voice. That you will not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion. You'll hear his voice and come to him again or perhaps for the very first time. And genuine repentance and faith. God is showing Astounding grace and mercy, where grace and mercy are, are far from deserved. This is what God is now doing in Israel. This is what God has already been doing all along, for we discover in verses 3 and 4 that there was a servant in charge of the household of Ahab who feared the Lord greatly. His name, we discover, was Obadiah, a name which literally means servant of Yahweh. And when Jezebel began to, to cut off all the prophets of the Lord from the land, what did Obadiah do? But he took a hundred of them and, and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. In the days of Elijah, the great dragon was seeking to destroy the church of Christ by killing all of her prophets. But God, through his servant Obadiah, hid a hundred of them in caves and kept them safe from wicked Jezebel. This is our confidence as office bears in the church of Christ. Once again, we see here God's preserving hand for his office bearers. Just as he had preserved his servant Elijah by the brook Cherith, sending ravens from heaven to bring him meat every morning and every day. And as he provided that never-ending supply of, of flour and oil in a pagan land in the heart of heathendom, so too in these last years, God has been providing for these prophets in Israel. He's been preserving his office bearers. I can help but wonder if those prophets found themselves ever singing together the words we sang a few moments ago when when troubles round me swell, when fears and dangers throng, securely I will dwell in God's pavilion strong. Although they hid in lowly caves, relying on the help of one man, Obadiah, they were secure. Those caves were as God's pavilion to them, guarding them, preserving their lives. We aren't told here what all Obadiah did to accomplish this, but what we can say for sure is that in the face of, of the wickedness of Ahab and Jezebel, the Lord was already working behind the scenes. It was the hand of the Lord that had placed Obadiah in this high office over Ahab's house. And it was the hand of the Lord that equipped Obadiah for faithful service in the kingdom in this way. It was the hand of the Lord that, that gave Obadiah courage and the, and the wherewithal to, to frustrate Jezebel's wicked and satanic plot to, to wipe out all the faithful prophets from the land. Even in this small remnant of a hundred prophets, says one pastor, the Lord was clinging to his church, to Israel. 
He would not permit his church to be wiped out completely. And so what Obadiah must and so what Obadiah did must be read as a prophecy of joyful hope, he writes. By way of those 100 prophets, the Lord was holding on to his church, indeed, to the entire covenant people. He was not writing them off as a lost cause. The bonds were not completely caught, but on the contrary, the special saving of the prophets had a redemptive meaning for all Israel. God was frustrating and thwarting the ploys of the evil one. And he was gaining the victory despite the fact that it would not at all have appeared to be the case. And all this was out of God's sheer grace. And so writes Vontveer in the days of temptation and strife, and in times when the power of the enemy thins her ranks, the church must never get discouraged or start complaining in unbelief. As the church under the cross, she will be preserved, perhaps even in caves. But the enemy will never succeed in finishing her off. We see congregation, the command to Elijah to return to Israel. We hear something of, of the triumph of God who walks in his own sovereign way, who, who will not allow his plans to be thwarted or, or frustrated by evil. He will not allow Satan to gain the upper hand. He will not allow Satan to destroy his work of redemption. He will not allow Satan to, to destroy his church. Because as we sang a few moments ago, the church's one foundation is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And yet when the Lord now conscripts Obadiah into his service here, Obadiah is going to begin to doubt these very things. His faith is going to begin to waver. And so just as God did with the widow in Zarephath, so to here we see God is is putting Obadiah's faith to the, te to the test. In his sovereign providence, Elijah and Obadiah come together and they meet together. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, verse 7, Elijah met him. And Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, It is you, my Lord. Is it you, my Lord, Elijah? And Elijah answered him, It is I. Go and tell your Lord, behold, Elijah is here. Once again, God's prophet enters the stage with a divine command. He's not merely asking for a favor here in the hopes that Obadiah might grant his request. But Elijah appears before Obadiah as God's word bearer. And he places this divine command upon Obadiah's life. It is I. Go tell your Lord. Elijah is here. For this story, too, is a story about the word of the Lord and what the word of the Lord is doing. God's word, not Ahab or Elijah or Obadiah, but God's word is, is calling the shots. This time, Ahab is going to come and, and appear before the word bearer and not the other way around. Ahab's time is up. Now the real battle is about to begin. From the very start of it, Ahab is going to be humbled. This time Elijah will not go and appear before Ahab, but Ahab will be summoned to appear before the word. 
And so as the word of the Lord calls the shots, God now puts his church to work. He now calls his servant Obadiah to to engage in this battle, to to no longer serve the Lord only in secret, but now to, to serve God openly, to go to King Ahab and say, Elijah is here. But much like in our own lives, Obadiah is rather hesitant to obey the prophet's command. Fearing the worst, he says in verse 9, How have I sinned that you would give your servant into the hand of Ahab to kill me? And this fear, being put to death by wicked Ahab, is reiterated two more times in verses 12 and 14. Obadiah, you see, is is, is afraid that Ahab will be so angered by the message that he will simply kill the messenger. Obadiah, of course, rightly understands that Elijah is indeed a man of God, and that Elijah will go wherever the, the Spirit carries him to go. And so on the one hand, it might almost seem as though Obadiah's complaint is rather warranted. But on the other hand, who is Obadiah to assume that the Lord will not protect him? Especially now in, in the context of God bringing his battle against the gods of the world into Ahab's backyard. But one pastor, it is foolish to think that the Lord would ever leave his servant unprotected. But Obadiah feared that if he devoted himself completely to God, and if he let the word of God govern his life, then he would fall into Ahab's clutches. And this was Obadiah's lack of faith. Obadiah is failing to recognize the power and preservation of his God. Obadiah is forgetting the fact that the strength of the Lord's church has always been in the reality that God himself takes responsibility for his church. And God promises her that there is nothing in all the world that can separate her from his love in Christ Jesus. For even if death should befall us, we know that even then, even then we remain in the Father's hand. For we know that not even a hair can fall from our heads apart from his will. For the enemy has never been able to, nor ever will he be able to determine our fate or the fate of the church. For God will never give us over into the enemy's hands. This is God's sure commitment to his bride, to the church of Christ. And so notice with me finally this evening how Elijah calms all of Obadiah's fears. He does so by swearing an oath to him in the name of the Lord of hosts. Verse 15, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. And it's no accident that Elijah uses a different formula here than he did earlier when he appeared before Ahab, saying, as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, there will be neither dew nor rain these years. Because here, in order that he might quiet Obadiah's fears, he reminds him that, that his God and our God is indeed the Lord of hosts. Ours is the God who has a heavenly army at his disposal. This title of honor says one right refers to the God of the covenant as the one who gives orders to all created powers, not only to the hosts of Israel, but also 
to the mindless forces of nature, wind and rain and the like. To quote Abraham Kuyper as the creator and lawgiver who establishes ordinances for all his creatures, God is in absolute control. For he gives force to his laws and thereby triumphs over all possible opposition on both the physical level as well as the ethical level. Or to quote Herman Bavik on this title, the Lord of hosts, he says, pictures God as the king full of glory. The king surrounded by his ordered hosts, ruling the entire world as the almighty and receiving honor and praise from all creatures in his temple. As the psalmist says in Psalm 118, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. Congregation, the Lord of hosts is with us. He is on our side. And so the church of Christ can face her enemies confidently knowing that the Lord is committed to giving her the final victory. And so we read that Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. God is setting the stage for the great showdown, and God is about to prove himself to be the one true God, the God of grace and mercy, who, who brings rain even when his people deserve the severest of droughts. And so here in this chapter, boys and girls, we come to see that it is often the case, isn't it, that, that where sin increased, that God's grace abounds all the more. In the midst of all Israel's sin and misery, the Lord of hosts is going to show amazing mercy. God is soon going to send rain upon the earth in Israel. Behold, congregation, the patient grace of God. He is not letting go of his people. God is showing us the wonder and glory of his grace and love that he comes back to Israel. He returns to rebellious Israel. And he comes intending to bring them rain. Yes, his discipline is still at work, but his love is still there too. That as we heard this morning in the assurance of pardon, Christ was in fact praying that the Father would forgive the very ones who had crucified him. And even after his glorious ascension to heaven, rather than, than wiping all those men out as he could have done without a problem, what did he rather say to the Apostle Peter? In the midst of their sin and misery, those Jews who had crucified the Christ, What's the message that Peter brought? Repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. In our sin and misery, we often try, don't we, to wiggle and, and wrestle our way out of the Father's hand. But what does the Father do? He holds us fast. He does not let us go. We cannot fall through the Father's hands, as Jesus said in John chapter 10. And he emboldens us again for service in the confidence that the Lord of hosts is on our side.
And if God is on our side, then we shall do valiantly. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you again this evening, thankful that you are a God of astounding grace and mercy. That you come to us, not when we have made ourselves worthy, but you come to us in the midst of our rebellion. That as you came to Israel, so you come to us and we are fists raised in anger and rebellion against you. And in your grace, you take those shaking fists by the hand and you never let them go. Father, we thank you that this grace can give us confidence to serve you boldly and faithfully in your kingdom. Forgive us, Lord, when our faith fails. When our faith often seems so weak and frail, continue, Lord, to hold us fast. Embolden us again, Lord, to live in light of the songs that we sing, that if the Lord is on our side, then what can man do to us? May you continue, Lord, to be a shield and buckler about us. As you continue, Lord, to keep your covenant promise to us, never to leave us nor forsake us, but to be God to us and to our children after us. Father, we pray that you would continue to shower your grace upon us, that you would work your grace into our hearts. Perhaps there are some here, Father, who, who are yet holding on and clinging to their sin. Father, grant them repentance. May they be swept up in the message of your grace and mercy for sinners. We ask this in the name of a gracious king. And in his name, amen. For a song of response, we'll sing.